happy Monday. Welcome to Bring the Jury with Luke and Brian Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm located in South Carolina. We are at the Columbia office today coming to you to give you some updates with the Alec Murdoch trial that we have been talking about ever since um, the jury tampering uh, with Becky Hill has kind of been in the news buzzing. So that's what we're going to be diving into today. So Brian, I'll let you just go ahead and tee us off um, with a recap of the initial initial defense filing for new trial. Yeah, this has got the state and the country in the grips of everything Alec Murdoch. Um, and so just, we touched upon this on our last podcast, but you know, the defense made this pretty explosive filing, um, asking for a new trial, asking to stay the appeal. I mean, Alec Murdoch was convicted of two counts of murder in the very publicized trial of his, uh, for his wife and his son, found guilty after a six-week trial. And so then six months later, we get this filing out of the blue. And the filing itself is pretty rare in any court, state, federal. Um, but the nature of the filing is what is the most rare aspect of it. And I think you know, Luke and I have been trying cases in South Carolina and state and federal court for going on 17 years now. And we've never, we rarely see jury tampering trial uh, allegations in terms of new evidence. And we certainly don't really see them in the context of a court official, a clerk of court being the one to be alleged to have engaged in this kind of conduct. Luke, just to kind of set the stage, what's, what is the role of the clerk of court and how, how does a clerk of court get that job? Well, she gets the job or he gets the job by running publicly. It's an elected position, so you have to do the political thing. And, you know, it's not like governor or president. Usually they sometimes fall in line with the party vote, but, you know, some are obviously more, um, more uh, qualified, let's just say, than others. But, um, here, the basic duty is, especially in a small courthouse, is to manage the jurors, make sure filings occur the right way but when it comes to trials, they have a safe space to deliberate, they're cared for, their parking vouchers are handled, that they get bathroom breaks, transportation issues are handled. I mean, they're really publicly official, glorified babysitters. Um, they really have no role in the process other than making sure a role is called and that they are taken care of on their everyday needs so that they can then perform this function in our judicial system of weighing the evidence in cases. Right. And so what the defense filing um, asserted, and you know, it's one thing to make a motion, it's another thing to attach a sworn affidavit to the motion, which is how you're really supposed to do it. When you, when you make a motion of this nature, you don't want to just be huffing and puffing and blowing smoke. You want to actually put your, your money where your mouth is. And so they did um, attach you know, a number of affidavits from at least two of the jurors in the Alex Murdoch trial. Um, and then another juror was kind of interviewed by a lawyer. Um, but basically, it's one juror in particular, 785, that says you know, she was interviewed by Becky Hill, the clerk of court, privately. Um, you know, asking her about conversations that she may have had about this case because the, you know the jury is not supposed to even discuss the case amongst themselves 
until they get the evidence at the end of a trial. Um, and so no one's supposed to talk to them about anything concerning the trial at all, period. Um, and so this juror number 785, really kind of the defense focuses on Becky Hill because you know, she started asking about a Facebook post from her ex-husband, who she's estranged from, and that's in the filing, this guy named Tim Stone, and juror 75 doesn't know anything about it, and is shocked about it, she's actually concerned a little bit, um, denies having any conversations about the case with her ex-husband, who she hasn't talked to in a decade, and that gets brought up to Judge Newman, um, that part of the transcript is included in the filing, and and Judge Newman, you know, before speaking to Becky Hill, is just kind of hearing about what the content is going to be about. And he's like, ooh, I do not like the fact that I'm hearing that Ms. Hill spoke to a juror in her office um, without bringing it to me first. I do not like that. And that's, you know, rightly so because, you know, the court, and, you know, and the jurors and everything in that purview is for the judge to be the arbiter of. The judge makes a decision about if they're fair and impartial throughout the course of the trial, that they're not speaking about the case outside before they get the case, and they don't get it until the case is over, they get charged in the law, and then get the evidence in the case, the exhibits and everything else. And so when he questions Ms. Hill about this Facebook post, she basically says, well, I was perusing Facebook last night and saw the Walterboro, what does it look, the Walterboro... Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Um, and saw, happened to see this post by Tim Stone, mm-hmm. here I recognize to be an ex-husband of juror number 785, and he's talking about how they're talking about the case, and she's made up her mind already. And so that's what Judge Newman is taking in after already being told that Becky Hill has interviewed this juror in her office. He doesn't like that, but he's basically questioning the juror on it, and she's saying, Judge, I don't know anything about that. And he's like, all right, Um, so you haven't talked to your ex-husband? No, I'm scared of him. He's estranged. Um, Okay. Um, Well, Miss Hill, can you produce this Facebook post? I can't seem to find it. I can't seem to find it. And then later on, a deputy clerk is able to produce another Facebook post from a a different Tim Stone, apparently, name spelled differently, um, Facebook profile picture different from Juror 785's um, profile picture, and then basically it's about a random apology from a a prior post. And it sounds kind of crazy about drinking and the devil and all kinds of stuff. And so what is purported to the court, Judge Newman, again, the arbiter of all things of the trial and the jury itself, is that this guy must have taken it down. And so that's a big part of the filing other in, in essentially Judge Newman says, all right, so you didn't talk to your ex-husband? Nope. We can't find the post? Nope. Can you be fair and impartial? And you haven't discussed it with anybody, right? Correct. All right. And so, you know, that basically is, is let, you know, left as it is and the, and the trial is proceeding. And then apparently there's more information Uh, in this filing that Becky Hill is then telling sled agents that, you know, there's information about other uh, co-workers of a tenant of this juror that are saying that she's talking about the case to the tenant, and that was corroborated by the tenant's 
coworker at Domino's Pizza. And then that is ultimately what, you know, cumulatively, I imagine, um, and again, the jurors like denies it, you know, Sled, who's, who's assisting, who's the investigating agency on this case is ripping up these witnesses, uh, the tenant and the coworker in the dead of night and asking them questions about this, the juror denies it and she ultimately gets dismissed and apparently um, she was a holdout. Um, there was a... So what does that mean? Basically means that, you know, improperly the pulse of the jury was being taken allegedly by Becky Hill. Mm -hmm. And she had, um, there was a prior four person that no longer was the four person and they had installed a new four person that Becky Hill, per these filings and, and these affidavits, most importantly, was having secret, private conversations with the jury four person in the bathroom, in the bathroom, <laughs> um, on smoke breaks, on very you know various secret meetings, and then that jury four person was then kind of a mouthpiece of Becky Hill and kind of taking the temperature of the room. Becky Hill also um, in this in these filings with the affidavits was saying, "Don't believe the defense. You're getting ready to hear from the Alec Murdoch. Don't believe his lies. Don't, Read you know, his body language. Watch out for his body language. I mean, these are the things that You're never gonna find the gun. So the so what's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. That's exactly what Creighton Waters said in his argument to the jury. And Becky Hill is supposed to be not a prosecutor." not a judge. As Luke said, she's a babysitter for the jurors. Make sure they can do their sworn duty in a way that's extremely comfortable and as least inconveniencing to their daily lives because you don't want a verdict rendered based on a rushed juror because mm -hmm. she doesn't get a smoke break and she smokes, you know, a 12 pack or 12 cigarettes a day. You don't want uh, childcare becoming an issue and a juror wants to rush a decision of this importance because they don't have daycare. You want th these kind of things, the jury, you want them to be fed. You know, you want them to have breaks so they're paying attention. Um, so apparently Becky Hill was playing prosecutor back there and kind of rallying the troops as she identified them as her jurors and was telling them what to expect when the defense puts up their case and what not to believe and don't think about the tricks. Um, and it's, Wildly inappropriate. Wildly inappropriate. And, and it's not just like she's some random person or even a bailiff, some other minor player within the courthouse. She's the clerk of court, the one that summoned them all there, the an one that's official. an elected official, writing them their small little check at the end of the week, the one that is handling all their issues, feeding them. So that when the clerk is about, other than the judge, is the person who they would they're attuned to listen to. She's the one saying, look out for a text from me or an email about scheduling. And so when it's not just like another juror saying, hey, in deliberations, yeah. look at the body language, don't believe them. It's the clerk, it's right. the establishment. This courthouse that is telling you not to believe him. So it's, it's really unheard of. Even the few cases that deal with some of this stuff are kind of addressing anecdotal comments by a bailiff, kind of not really that harmful, you know, as they're trying to be helpful. But this is directly influencing a decision and, and taking the pulse of the jury on a daily basis so that she can, per the affidavit, discern 
who is someone that I might need to get rid of because they're on the fence or even how, you know, maybe a holdout. And so that's, if, if all this filing was a bombshell. So if it's true, we've already discussed this, you have to have a hearing. And if it's true and it's borne out in an evidentiary hearing through that testimony, our opinion is you have to have a new trial. Well, the, yeah, the legal standard basically is, was there communication about the subject matter of the trial? Not just like, you know, can I, do you want Chick-fil-A for lunch? Um, do you want Burger King? Do you want Five Guys? It is, don't believe their tricks. Watch out the, for the body language. Don't be fooled by the defense. So presumably that's about the subject matter of the trial. Of course it is. And then would that alter the, the outcome of the case? And so that's the legal standard. And it's been proven now by two affidavits. Um, and then the case law basically says that it's the presumption that is there, that the, that the communication is by a court official, makes that presumption even stronger that it would influence the outcome of a trial because, it, again, it's by the juror's handler. It's by the person that they look to for where they go, what they do, how they conduct themselves. I mean, other than Judge Newman in this case, it was Becky Hill that was telling them how to live their lives for six weeks, essentially. So it can be very much influential proceeding so that's that's really the recap um, and for anyone that's not familiar with kind of Becky Hill and, and what's going on she did have a book deal which is kind of I guess the motive or what they're claiming to be the motive behind all of this um, wanting to serve justice and kind of be a key player in that um, and so you can buy her book Doors of Justice on Amazon <laughs> Yeah. But it just makes it all very suspicious, and if you kind of read into the book, kind of just read the summary or you know preview of it, it's very. What's suspicious. the cost? What's the book going for on Amazon? I believe the price has actually dropped. Hmm. It's now it's now a, a great deal. You could get the book. I believe it went from twenty one dollars now to nineteen. Hmm. Yeah. It's a fire sale. Um, There's about three hundred reviews. So. And, and you know the whole thing is, well, why is it? a book deal important why is financial what does financial gain have to do with anything well is your book going to sell better if you were the clerk of court for the ultimate disposition of the biggest trial in south carolina and one of the biggest trials in the nation or do you not get to write it write and sell a book if it's for a hung juror. You just peter out with a hung jury. And it's a man. Right and right juror 785 caused this to go oh, back man. to square one. And this is going to be to be continued. So I think that's, I think that's what the, the, the reasoning why a, a clerk of court would go get so far, as Luke likes to say, out in front of their skis on a, on a case. You say that all the time. <laughs> um, but... So that's the recap of the filing, but what happened last Thursday? So independent of this bombshell filing, um, there was a status conference last week for Alec Murdoch's um, financial crime cases. And it was, it was a very large status conference that included all the players in the Murdoch orbit, um, Russell Lafitte, Corey Fleming, and so Judge Newman held court in Beaufort County. Um, and this was televised on court TV last week. And it was, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do on the financial 
crime trial date. And so I know a lot of people are like, well, why does it matter? He, on the stand during the murder trial, admitted his guilt to each and every single one of the financial crimes. Um, why is there, why are we talking about a trial date? Why, what's going on? And so there was a lot of wrangling back and forth between Creighton Waters and, and the defense team. And Jim Griffin and Harpulian wanted to push it, push the trial till next year. And well, number one, Judge Newman is not going to be, you know, he's having to retire um, in January. So he won't be a judge that presumably would be capable of handling this case. Um, but they were citing their own trial schedules. Um, Jim Griffin had a trial in Texas. He was citing Dick Carpulian had a big um, civil trial that he was citing. Um, and Judge Newman just was not having it. He was saying, it's going to happen. I'm going to give you three or four dates between now and the end of the year. You guys tell me. And so, it, you know, Harpoon was like, well, can we confer? We'll email you later. Nope. You guys huddle up. And they Pull had the calendars. Get your calendars out. And so they did huddle up and they came back um, with a November 27th. Right after Thanksgiving. Should make for a restful Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. Um, the holidays are so relaxing. Right. And so, and then, you know, Harpulian was saying, well, judge, this shouldn't really even be a trial. I mean, why, what's the hurry? Is what he repeatedly said. And this is pretty interesting. This little bit, he said, Judge Newman, I know based on your sentencing in this matter of the murder trial that you have very strong feelings about Alec Murdoch and his guilt on the murder case. You made that very, very well known. It was a very lengthy and, um, you know, well-established uh, sentencing hearing the next day. And Harpoon said, don't let your, your, your personal beliefs get in the way of what's right for essentially due process and everything else. Which I'm sure a judge loves to hear. So, well, Judge Newman had nothing to say about that because he knows he's not going to comment on that. But what that essentially was, Luke, and we've talked about this, I mean, why why say that to a judge about his personal beliefs in the matter um, as you're trying to schedule a trial? And it's because, you know, it's our belief well, my belief, I think it's your belief too, Luke, that you know he's going to tee up some is it my personal belief? motion to recuse Judge Newman um, Oh yeah, in the future. And so he's trying to fill the record full of, remember when you called out Murdoch a monster at a sentencing? Remember all this? So, Luke, I mean, that, don't you think that's Yeah, I think now that they're on the record again, he's already alluded to the fact that he believes Judge Newman is a witness for a potential motion for a new trial. So it is because of the his uh, Newman's personal observations and interactions with Becky Hill that the defense is pointing out are fabrications by Clerk Hill, and that Newman's showing his frustration with her with the kind of the, oh boy I'm not happy about her interrogating the juror before bringing her to me. So yeah, you, you typically don't want you can't be a witness and be a decider of the case um, because you might have to decide things that relate to your own opinion as a witness. So. They want to interject that, you know, no one really expected this type of motion. And as we said before, Judge Newman is someone who typically says a lot during a sentencing, doesn't typically hold back. He's also willing to give a, a defendant who's being sentenced a chance to kind of say their piece. And sometimes it helps them quite favorably on a sentencing. But here, Judge Newman was definitely saying his piece. 
And Murdoch was, uh, you know, holding out on his innocence and saying he loves his family and he would never hurt them. And so it was, those, there were pretty particularly pointed comments that now if you're having this request for judges for a new trial to be decided based on after discovered evidence, it does make it, I think, more difficult, at least in the position of the defense, for Judge Newman to say he's fair and impartial to decide this when he said these things and is potentially a witness to whatever Becky Hill is doing there as he has, you know, close, behind the closed doors interactions of her conduct and um, might even be in a, in a position where he can see kind of her comings and goings as sometimes they, you know, the judges are privy to the back hallways of small courthouses. So I think the defense is trying to make a record for reasons why they can say that Judge Newman shouldn't hear the motion and that's just kind of what they have to do. Um, Judge Newman, obviously, I, I think he'll, he will probably end up hearing the motion. Oh, yeah. I don't, he, he's he not going to probably sidestep that. No. Judge Newman um, will certainly not recuse himself from this motion for a new trial. I, mean, I think we've talked about the strategy of it. It really is a win-win for the defense um, because you've got a client who's sentenced to two life sentences. Here, Judge Newman, if he doesn't recuse himself, and then he denies the motion, then it goes up for appeal. It's just a whole nother appellate issue that didn't actually have before on top of what they had. Um, if he, you know, weighs the evidence and says, you know what, this is, this is too much by Clerk Becky, I'm going to grant a new trial, then that's a win for the defense as well. So it's a lot of uh, legal strategic maneuvering right now. But back to why, is, why are we even setting a trial date? And why would this even go to trial on the financial crimes I'm talking about? Um, and what, you know, what Harpulian said and Creighton Waters did not deny is that these financial crimes, um, and they want to try the Satterfield family allegations first, and they want to try them in Beaufort County on the 27th. And so Harpulian was kind of lamenting, well, it shouldn't be a trial, but Creighton Waters won't let us do a global plea to all this stuff. He's forcing us to plead, you know, singularly. And why would you do that in these separate kind of, you know, trials? And the reason it is is because if he can get a conviction, Creighton, for, let's say, breach of trust with fraudulent intent over $10,000 in South Carolina State Court, that is a strike. And a lot of people hear about three strike laws. So if they get two of these convictions... If they say, screw you, separate and distinct offenses, screw you, we're going to try this one, and then we're going to try this one, and then guess what? We're going to call the third one, and that will be life without parole. Once you get two of these strikes, and each breach of trust, 10000 more in South Carolina is a strike, then that third one, we're going to serve life without parole notice, and... It doesn't matter what happens with the murder trial, whether we get a new trial, whether it comes down on appeal, you are going to be buried in a pine box in SCDC, the Department of Corrections, if they get him like that. And so Creighton made a big point. He was like, listen, I'll, I'll try these how I see fit. I don't care about their desires. He used a South Carolina bar license to commit heinous financial crimes in these county courthouses and these halls of justice, we're going to get him. We're going to get what we need out of him. I don't care about the federal plea. Because um, Harpulian was also saying, well, he's going to plead in federal court next week, judge. I mean, what? what's the rush? Um, 
So it's very clear that the strategy by the Attorney General's office is to get these strikes sequentially and then personally hand him that life without parole notice. I imagine that'll be done live on court TV in a very dramatic fashion. Um, and that's what that's about. So um, we got a November 27th trial date. Um, and, you know, some other things happened on that day. I mean, Corey Fleming got sentenced to 20 years for his involvement in the financial schemes. It was a pretty hefty pill for Corey. Um, you know, apparently, you know, he had lots of good witnesses saying you know, what a great guy he was, but um, Newman lit him up, sent a message. So, mm -hmm. um, what else are we talking about, Hannah? Well, I know that Luke already touched on it about Judge Newman being a witness, but I think some people are talking about. I've got, I've got a lot over here at headquarters. Yeah. Um, I've leveled up, so I've got quite a lot to monitor while also kind of listening. Um, very I, I just want to see that intro again. That looks so cool. Yeah, the intro. I can show the intro again. Yeah, let's see the intro um, again. This is our interim intro. We do have um, others coming, but <laughs> TikTok can't see the intro. So oh. watch us on live. But um, you talk about Judge Newman being a witness. Also, people are wanting to know more about his retirement and how that would kind of play into the timing of everything. And when is he retiring? Is it November or December? Because we're split in the chat. My understanding is that the beginning of 2024, January, he, he's forced to retire. Now, that being said, there are judges that, you know, they're forced to retire from their full-time gig. Right. But they get to come back in a part-time capacity. Right. And we have judges around the state. Um, Judge Cooper comes to mind. Former Chief Justice Toll. Yeah, so I mean, the fact that he's retired doesn't mean he's never going to wear a robe again. I mean, they just can't be a full-time circuit court judge, but they can come back in more limited capacities to help out as needed. And so it may very well be that he comes back and, and I don't think our, I don't see our Supreme Court finding anyone's more fit to try these cases or to hear these cases than Judge Newman at this point. Um, so yeah, he, he does retire from full-time duty, but he could certainly take a special assignment. Mm, okay, that's good to know. Who is investigating the jury tampering claims by the state? Sled, old <laughs> sled. Um, it's like the fox investigating the hen house. Yeah. So, I mean, that was- And wait, is that? Is that a conflict? Brian wrote it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a conflict. Um, so yeah, I got to now, now you will note in footnote one of, of Alan Wilson's filing, uh, the return to the um, Harpootlian's motion. They know in footnote one that these are different agents, different, separate, and distinct agents. from those agents who have otherwise investigated. So this is all in good, well, let's, good faith. Well, let's, since Luke has kind of walked us into, well, did this, the state respond to the bombshell filing? Yes, they did. Um, they responded on the 15th, and they basically said, now they did, they did not, of course, they basically say, we find lots of discrepancies with the, essentially what the defense is asserting. They don't talk about their investigation, um, they just find we find numerous discrepancies that contradict what we're talking about here or what the defense is talking about. No affidavits attached. They do 
put a little nice footnote saying, and by the way, in case you're really worried that our same, you know, same, same task force that was ripping up people <laughs> in the middle of the night, rip, ripping up those jurors is back now again. <laughs> right. so like, and and, and do, let's not forget, sorry to interrupt, but this was, the SLED investigation was not great in the Murdoch case. No. And they got a lot of national scrutiny and criticism and they had agent, the shell casings. Yeah, the shell casings. Agent Odom admitted to lying to a grand jury. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff like that to the point where it really, um, you know, at the start of the trial, I think Alan Wilson wasn't there, but by the end of it, he was there and taking part. And then at, at the end for the victory parade, uh, the SLED chief, Mark Keel. Mark Keel, was there and they were very staunchly defending SLED's performance. So it's not like they're just and also like, saying anyone that has any Murdoch criminal dealings, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. You let us know. So it wasn't like they didn't take this all personally. They pushed back quite hard. And you know what? When you're the winner, you get to do that. But you can't also say and that say, is true. When you win, you right. get to dictate the story. You can't then also say like, well, don't worry. We're just subjectively, you know, following <laughs> the evidence where it goes, and there's nothing to see here. Like just investigating, o- overturning potentially the biggest trial that SLED has ever been a part of investigating. And that's that's kind of why at the big press conference when the defense unveiled this motion that they called for a federal investigation. You know, kind of a a higher power that wasn't immediately involved in the underlying case to look at this kind of with an objective, you know, clean hands, so to speak, and not be so personally involved. But so far, we don't have any information on that. And Right. So this, this response filing basically says, number one, we, will, we find some discrepancies, although we're not going to tell you what they are. Uh, at least not yet. And number two, there's some procedural defects in this filing, and that uh, we're gonna just note that to the court. Uh, Luke, what what are they saying about some of these procedural defects for the defense's filing? Well, I mean, a lot of it is just normal stuff, and they cite the rule, which is basically 29B. And of course, it's it's important. No one wants to have every case Monday morning quarterback to death. I mean. If you truly have discovered something new and earth-shattering, yes, it needs to be brought forward. But if it was something basically that the lawyers could have discovered or just were lazy or as a strategy decision, no, no, no. But here they cite this case, um, uh, State v, no, it's actually State v. DeAngelis, which is from 1971, that, that says something I have not heard before, where it's just critical and essential that to have a motion for a new trial on after-discovered evidence properly heard, it must be support, supported by an affidavit of the accused himself, not other witnesses to something important, not even the lawyer, but the guy on trial who's you know sitting in prison has to say why he thinks he, what's the new evidence? And I was like, I don't see that in the rule. So I looked at that case and it's a 1971 case that was generally cited for the fact that it was about a denial of a motion for after-discovered evidence after, number one, it was a grand larceny guilty plea for a guy that pled guilty and then said, hey, you know, there's some other guy probably did it, but that was not, it's not in the rule that requirement for an affidavit by the accused, but they cite, it seemed to be uh, them kind of making new law. And as we 
as I know from being a lawyer and having uh, argued some cases on appeal, that sometimes when, a, when the courts want to reach a particular result, they will kind of, uh, I won't say do some legal gymnastics, but they'll just kind oh, of... Oh, come on, you say that all the time. <laughs> they'll, look, they'll look for a way to justify what they want to do. And so here, there was no long-standing South Carolina law that said, hey, the accused has to present an affidavit. It was, they cited um, a secondary source, which is the 24 CJS criminal law, um, basically like a treatise. Uh, they cited, and then they cited two out-of-state cases, which would be the Commonwealth of Kentucky, Chilton case, and then a Texas case. Um, they maybe not, have that rule on their books? Maybe they do, um, but there was never a South Carolina rule. So they're, they're looking for guidance from other states and saying that that is what is required, but that has also never been, you know firmly cited as a holding or a rule in later cases on this exact point. So um, I noticed in the defense's response to that, they ignored it completely and just plowed forward with more affidavits and uh, evidence of the real Tim Stone. Right. So the state, just to wrap up the state's filing, we find issues that would dispute the defense's uh, you know, claims, essentially. Um, and we think there's a procedural defect, and we're gonna give the state, or excuse me, give the defense 10 days to cure that, which kinda is like an invitation to have Alec Murdoch, you know, have his own affidavit in this case, which, again, the, the, the precedent's not there. It's just kind of a... Hey, my lawyers told me through their efforts that some witnesses were being uh, intimidated by Becky. I had no knowledge of it, but yeah, I'd like somebody to do something about it. Right. And so <laughs> so the, the defense files today um, their supplemental motion to suspend the appeal and for leave to file a motion for new trial. And essentially what they do is they double down on the fabrication... Facebook post allegation that Becky Hill is alleged to have uh, reported to the court. And so we talked about juror 785 and her estranged ex-husband and this kind of made up Facebook post and that was, they couldn't find it. And then they say, oh, well, we saw something from another Tim Stone. So they tracked down the other Tim Stone and he apparently is from out of state and he's basically like, yep, that was me. And I don't know nothing about no Walterboro word of mouth. I never posted anything about that. This was, I don't know anything y'all are talking about. I never talked to Jervis 75. I, don't ne- I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, here's, here's my Facebook post. And I was, my wife's auntie was, I posted that because she was all up in our business. She was sticking her nose she, in my business. Where it didn't belong. And here are, here are all these posts. So like, they're just doubling down and saying not only... Was there no discussion from 785 juror with anybody? And this Facebook post was a fabrication. You know, let us show you how we can tell you it was a fabrication. This guy didn't know anything about it. They've already um, got an affidavit from the the husband, Tim Stone, and he never talked to his wife. That was in the initial filing. So they pretty much ignore the state's invitation to cure a procedural defect and just double down with more about how this was clearly a fabrication. The one thing that is kind of sad and somewhat hilarious is that this real tombstone, not the ex of, juror, of the juror in question, 
he and his wife were like going back and forth on social media. And so now this thing that probably has been deleted and it was probably a minor, poorly judged event to air your dirty laundry is now like internationally publicized. <laughs> like he's apologizing and his wife is like, well, why apologize for something you really meant? You meant what you said. They don't mean anything. And he's trying to apologize again. And then someone else says something and she's like, hmm. and then the wife is like, guess what? Karen, we're no longer together. I can't serve God and the devil both, so I had to let him go. And it's like, oh my God, like this this was a major line in the sand that is now in public filings at the Supreme Court. Which is a great Court time appeals. to oh, remind man. everyone to treat your texts, emails, uh, and social yeah. media as if a judge or jury would read them one day. Because you never know where they may end up. You never know. So, yeah. bottom line is, we are we have a November 27th trial date on the financial crimes. It's only a trial because the state wants to get their strikes and will not allow a global plea so they can eventually serve life without parole on Alec Murdoch. And so that would have him, like I said, being <clears throat> one day buried in a pine box in SCDC as opposed to potentially doing a global plea and then getting his murder charges, maybe a new trial, maybe not, but if there's any wiggle room on that, the state is trying to hem him in the best way they know how, as is their right, um, and apparently he's pleading in federal court this week on those charges. And one question we were asked by a local news outlet is, will there be an evidentiary hearing prior to that trial date? And I think you said, absolutely not. Uh, I thought not because it would be a distraction before those that trial but maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong although yes there will be tell me why because now, everybody um, answer me this who's setting that date for that judge newman uh, yeah or do you think he's taking guidance from the court appeals i'm sure he's taking some guidance from maybe court administration but like I mean, we've had, we've all had motions and things that have sat out there on judges' desks for a while that are okay, but this is, there'll be so many FOIA requests and requests for information and like, this is not the, the thing that you just like, don't, don't answer the question of whether there will be a hearing on this for the foreseeable future because it's just almost too annoying. And, and my, my belief is that the more time sits, I mean, all these jurors have lawyers now. And some of them, like, you know, obviously some folks affiliated maybe in a friendly way with the defense are representing some. And then you've got some other lawyers that are affiliated maybe in a friendly way with the victims or the Satterfields who are, like, representing others. So it's, for lack of better words, it's turning into an S show. So the more time that goes on, the more of an opportunity there is for, unfortunately, jurors to get scared or feel influenced in a particular way. So you okay, just, okay. If there is something going on here, you just want to get it figured out, is my opinion. And so I think that ha- it can't just be lingering and lingering because, you know, they're, they're probably, I mean, some of them are known. I mean, they went on national TV afterwards. It's not that hard for people to figure out who they are and they will be peppered with requests for interviews People will be showing up at their houses. I mean, it just needs, a pen needs to be put in this. 
Well, that's my opinion. And that evidentiary hearing would turn into at least a week-long trial. You do know this. Mm. It would feel like a week-long trial. I mean, I, I had a jury tampering situation a long time ago, a trial I did in front of Judge Newman, and he conducted an evidentiary hearing about jury tampering on for my client, who was the defendant, who was supposed to have done the jury tampering, and then two of the jurors. So really it was a three kind of witness examination after the trial. And I just recall that seemed like it took at least half a day. And that was very much a very diminished um, situation. But here, everyone's lawyered up. We've got lots of evidence. Lots of evidence. You've got got Miss Becky Hill, who's under, certainly she's double lawyered up at this point. She's got two lawyers that are assisting her in this investigation and what could be coming. And it would just, I would just take you know, a week, week, more than a week, to get through an evidentiary, probably evidentiary hearing. Now, Judge Newman is very efficient. He's very fast. But it's just, it's just a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, what else? We had um, Debbie from Crime Sleuthing. Hey, Debbie. She's watching. Um, hey, Debbie. She wanted to circle back to Corey Fleming, and she had a question uh, if you all believed that he was over-sentenced. He seemed genuinely remorseful, good candidate for rehab. Yeah, I think, generally speaking, that would be a pretty tough sentence if he were just like a normal financial crimes person, you know, no record or whatever, but the fact that he was attached to this case, Mm -hmm. which kind of enabled tons of financial misdoings, and also the fact that he was a licensed and barred lawyer in this state. And so he was not only committing these financial crimes, but he, you know, lawyers were supposed to hold ourselves out to a higher standard, higher ethical standard, um, higher fiduciary standard, and so I, I kind of, I think we all kind of figured he was going to get popped. Um, so now um, there are, even though he's sentenced, there are, you know, motions that can be made by his counsel in the future. Um, and he had Debbie Barbier, who is a wonderful um, former assistant U.S. attorney. She's actually in private practice. We walk past her building. She's two blocks away from us here, but she's a fantastic lawyer. And I know that if there are future uh, trials, uh, financial crime trials, and he's already pled guilty and been sentenced, you know, he can seek assistance from the government for his cooperation. So there may be a future downward departure motion that could be filed on his behalf for his truthful um, assistance and securing conviction for Alan Murdoch. So that's one way to reduce his sentence. But that's a good question, Debbie. I, I mean, it was a tough sentence, but I, I didn't see any other way around it given the high profile of this case, the fact that he's a lawyer. Um, so maybe it incentivizes him to aid the government. Yeah, I think it is a tough sentence, and you try to. I'm sure there's a national database where you can compare that sentence to other sentences, but it is the fact that South Carolina has been embarrassed. Um, really, the lawyers have been put on national spotlight to make us look like a 
backwater mud puddle <laughs> cesspool and so part of it is like this purging or cleansing you know if it was just some guy who stole money let's say he was uh, an accountant and it didn't make international news but he stole from his clients would he get that kind of sentence no but it, unfortunately he's attached to this case in the way that it's been prosecuted the type of notoriety that it got and it, and unfortunately high press cases people making decisions and the people that are prosecuting a high press case want they know the world is watching so they want to seem like they're doling out justice um so there's a bad case 20 years bad i don't know it's definitely a steep Someone else had another question. Um, how is it that Alec Murdoch could potentially have two trials in the time span that some people are just still waiting to have one? Is it that media pressure? Is yeah. it just that this is just natu nationally well, recognized? It's the same reason that when we talk about Koberger, that he's getting a trial date within a year on yeah. a death case. Well, that he's now... Right. It, was, just it was scheduled, but it's it's just because of when the, the world is watching, the wheels of justice move swiftly. But well, that was a sticking that's point. A good that was a, that is a good one. Uh, say it again. What was it? When the world is watching, the wheels of justice move swiftly. <laughs> um, but that was a kind of a heated point in the status conference because Harpoolian was saying, "Well, what's the hurry? What's the hurry?" And you know what. You know why are we having to try this so fast? And and then Harpoolian said at the status conference. I mean, in fact, this the murder trial got tried so fast, and Creighton Water was just very kind of offended. It's like, listen, the only reason it got tried so fast because you guys filed a speedy trial motion. And he uh, said something about waiving his legislative immunity. Immunity, right? And so that they, that was the most, I guess, antagonistic between those two at that status conference. Um, they're pretty pretty upset with each other, but they were both kind of blaming each other. And I have to say, I think Creighton was right on that one. They filed a speed trial and waived any legislative immunity. And it was kind of one of those, uh, you know, stare downs uh, in those old Western movies. And they just walked into the center of the, of the old town and they just drew down and uh, Creighton won on that case, but no one, no one was backing away. And so that was, but you're right. It's kind of like us for next week. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we fought a speed trial on a case for next week. No one's back in the way. We can kind of wrap up with what do you guys predict will happen with Becky Hill? Ooh, well, ooh, ooh, ooh. I think a new trial gets granted. But with her, you know, does she, if SLED's investigating, I doubt she'll see any, any, uh, anything that come of it. But if the feds look at it, I mean, she's clearly violated that state statute on public officials not enriching themselves. And then it, it just, if, if this hearing occurs and, and these jurors publicly stand by their statements, I mean, that's certainly a record that doesn't go away. I mean, it, any prosecutor could federal prosecutor could look at that and pull a transcript and just in, indict. Um, but I don't know. There's going to be a lot of politics involved. Mm. Um, but she's smart to have hired lawyers. Mm -hmm. Right. She's got a couple good lawyers. Yeah. Brian, what about you? You just echo the same. I just think Judge Newman will not recuse himself. 
I think based on what I'm seeing so far, again, one side's filing affidavits, one side's not. So I can only go with the evidence before me. I think if all this is true, a new trial on the murder case would have to be granted. But I think Murdoch's going to get trial by combat separately on his financial crimes and get life without parole anyway. So that's the way I see it. Someone just got funny. Someone said it's a shame. It's a shame she wasn't smart before she wrote the book. <laughs> I imagine the book. We need to read the book. Maybe we'll start a bring the jury book club, uh, um, and we can all read the book and discuss. But I imagine that so much of that book will be used as evidence. I mean, yeah. it's practically just. It already has been. It's yeah, already right. been quoted. <laughs> just. Uh, yeah. You could probably just cross-examine it with the book. Exactly. If, you, if someone were in that position, but. It's pretty tough. Um, all right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there for this week. We're going to probably ride this Murdoch train for a while. Um, maybe veering off, taking a little detour for Coburger here and there. Um, but Alec Murdoch is what we do best. So, and we'll see you all next time. This has been Bring the Jury. <laughs>